0: Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am excited about this week's episode. It's one that has been, I think, a couple years in the making. And uh, we've had conversations about this a number of times over the last few years. And every single time this one came up, I kept thinking, you know what? This is one I have to do in person at the place. Around here in Ava, Illinois at Scratch Brewing with Marka Josephson and Aaron Clyden, and uh, we are sitting out in the uh, few steps down from the brewery under a nice outdoor uh, overhang with the woods right behind us, um, experiencing the terroir and the beautiful location of this brewery. Scratch, if you're not familiar with Scratch, and I I really hope you are, because it is one of the premier farmhouse breweries in the United States. I think in a lot of ways, sum up the idea of what farmhouse brewing can and should be as in the United States itself. Uh, Making beers that are certainly inspired by farmhouse traditions uh you know of europe but are also distinctly of place using ingredients and using um, the local nature and surrounding to create beers that feel like they are meant to be made right here they've had, using innovative processes and some um, very historical processes a uh, wood-fired brew house amongst other things and uh, making a, a wide variety of beer we're going to talk about everything from ingredient approach about foraging about how they test use evaluate and then uh, adding uh, some of these disparate ingredients into their beers. We're going to talk about brewing in this very manual way, and we're going to talk about building a place that uh, is also a beautiful destination, one that they have built with their own hands in a lot of ways here. Uh, but first, before we do that, like your flagship beer, you can rely on GD chillers for the same quality and consistency. GD guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat, They never stop, they draft, they craft, they service each and every brewery, big or small, all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, G&D's been committed to cold... Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. Also, even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1 800 374 2739. One thing before we start talking. Um, Two weeks ago, we had another weird milestone with this podcast. Four million downloads. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just a number and it's kind of arbitrary, but it's pretty fun to think about that. Historically speaking, we've hit almost 20,000 downloads per episode back to the beginning of the podcast. Thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast and caring about what we do. Because uh, it is really fun to be able to do that and also to bring experiences like this and be able to sit here in Ava, Illinois, out on the edge of the woods next to this beautiful, rustic farmhouse brewery um, with Marika and Aaron. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> the way we, um, you know, like I said, it is, uh, it's been a dream to come out here. And in fact, I am. Uh, I have built an entire road trip back down to Memphis and, and back. Uh, and part of the thinking behind doing that was it might be a chance to get out here and do this podcast in person and, and see the brewery that we've written about before. We've tasted the beers before. Your beers have scored well with our blind judges. And we've had beers of the year and years past from scratch. What you all are doing is Incredibly interesting in its um, in its vision and the kind of constitution, the idea of creating beers like this. Because it's very easy for folks to get into brewing to think about brewing in much more safe ways, and in a lot of ways, building this kind of brewery is a fun and crazy risk, but also um, you know sets you all up as exploring a vision that is, you know, rooted in this kind of place and makes it so some, so let's talk a little bit about uh, beer history first. How did both of you all get into craft beer and then decide that following this kind of passion was, was going to be the path for you all?
1: Well, I think, um, kind of one of the interesting things is that Aaron and I came from really different backgrounds way outside of beer. Um, we're both humanities people. Um, you know, Aaron has a background in photography I have a background in English and philosophy. Um, And I think that that sort of alternate perspective is part of what, um, you know, gives us a unique take. And then also the fact that we were sort of confident enough to just, or crazy enough to go (laughs) ahead and pursue it. Sure, (laughs) Um, We both were very interested in, you know, local plants and in different ways and come at it from different perspectives. But we both felt like just, in our guts, it was the right way to go with the brewery. And, um, we also had just had the confidence in, in some of the early experiments that we were doing that we could taste it and, and knew that it tasted good. And that if it tasted good to us, it would taste good to other people too, even if maybe nobody had ever tried a beer with that ingredient before.
2: Yeah. As, uh, as Marika had said, um, we both came from different, uh, different areas. But I think we both, uh, share a love of, uh, travel and we've both been able to travel a fair bit with just different jobs we've had and things like that. I was always inspired by the places and things that they made in that place. Um, so for me, I think I was really excited to start a brewery where I'm from, a place that I love, and, um, showcasing things about this area that are really unique. And we have such a insane plant biodiversity here in the Southern part of the forest. Uh, we're in the Shawnee national forest. We have plants from the North that the Mississippi river brought down originally. And then we have Eastern deciduous forest from, uh, You know, some Appalachia plants come in, and then we're on the eastern edge of the prairie, the coastal plains to the south. We have cypress swamps here, so we just have all these different ingredients. And um, it's really exciting to uh, translate a plant, the smell of it in the forest, into a beer. It's quite a challenge to know when to add it or when not to add it, or even to replicate a memory from childhood and say... This beer is based on sitting by a fire when I was a little kid eating a marshmallow or something like that. So I think our beers have uh, a nostalgic edge for us as well. And we see that with people that come visit here. Um, sometimes we had a, a customer here that had the single tree hickory beer. And for her, she said that reminded her of her grandfather because he had a wood stove and he always fired hickory. So the smell of that fire was also the same smell in that, uh, beer. So it, it's, it's definitely like, uh, people that visit the space, they understand and they, they get that there's this intimate quality to the beer. It's, I don't think we've ever had a desire to just add weird things to a beer just for the sake of adding weird things. These, uh, these ingredients all, in my opinion, they all have the ability to elevate beer into, uh, uh, just so many different, uh, levels.
0: Aaron, this lo- the location for this brewery is also personally meaningful for you that, uh, this is family land and, or it was family land. It's a place that you'd spent a lot of time when you were younger. And, uh, you know, and so you, y- um, you, you have that connection and and, uh, an intense knowledge of, of the stuff that's here too. Yeah. I've had a
2: really deep connection to the forest here. I've, uh, when I got out of college, I lived, um, in Chicago for a little while and I knew the city wasn't for me. Then I moved out West and there was always the pull of coming back home and figuring out a way to make it work here because it is a, a fairly economic desolate, (laughs) Sure. <laughs> kind sure. of area i mean if you if you want to live in southern illinois it seems like you have to kind of create your own way yeah a lot of times so um but yeah growing up we would always uh camp and fish and hunt and so i have memories from here from every month of the year for 40 years now so
0: so the two of you were friends where did where did you all meet yeah, we were both
1: homebrewers. Um when we opened this place, there was a we had a third partner who was also a homebrewer. Um there was a a, a craft beer um, bottle shop uh, nearby that was kind of the only place to get craft beer at the time. This was probably maybe 12 years ago. Um, otherwise it was a little bit of a craft beer desert in this area. Um, so a lot of homebrewers would gather there and we would all share beer, stuff that we um, brewed at home or stuff we got on travels. Um, and we would always, you know, grab some bottles to share at the, at the shop. And on Monday nights, we would we would all get together. So that's that's where we met. And uh, just recently, I was kind of reliving this. I found an old email from Aaron. It was his introductory email to say, hey, my name's Aaron. I moved to Southern Illinois. I moved back home. <laughs> and I, fo- I found your blog because I was blogging at the time about my, my beer adventures. Um, he's like, I've, I made a beer with um, sassafras and persimmons and oak, a couple different beers. And I wanted you to try them. So he came to the the bottle shop the next Monday and... Honestly, they are probably two of the most memorable beers that I've ever had in my entire life and probably just honestly probably changed the course of my life just having those beers. I still remember what they tasted like. I still remember the sassafras and the persimmon. And I had been experimenting a little bit with more like farmed ingredients at the time, but I felt like those were really magical flavors um, and interesting flavors and things that were worth exploring. And that, you know, putting them together, putting them together with other ingredients um, that I had just started exploring, too, would make for some really fascinating beer.
0: Aaron, what uh, what threw you down that road of of making beers with ingredients that you find here on the property, like sassafras, bee balm, some of the things we were chewing on as we were walking around the property earlier?
2: Um, when I was, uh, I was probably in sixth grade, <laughs> and my, uh, my dad's partner in his heating and air business would dig, uh, ginseng and golden seal on the, uh, on the weekends for something to do. So he showed me what those plants looked like. And up until that point, we had always had a big garden and we would, uh, we would go and dig wildflowers and then bring those back. It was always like a, of the kind of like a family thing where everybody knew in the flower bed at my grandmother's house. We knew what family brought this plant here and what, where it came from. So there was always some like, uh, there was always a place attached to that ingredient or the the flowers. So it had a story. So. I started digging, uh, ginseng and golden seal in the summers. So I was always in the woods and I tried to make it a point to try to learn a new plant every time I was in the woods or once a week. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but it can get pretty overwhelming. Um, Sure. But over, over the course of 20 or 30 years, you really start to add quite a few plants and, um, different smells and things like that that I've never smelled in like commercial food or or beer or drink and they've become just really really great over the last 10 years mark and I have essentially been building our own kind of spice kit with all these ingredients we use in beer and we keep coming back to certain ones and there's uh you know every beer we brew it's kind of a it's an experiment for what's come so we're always learning from every batch of beer we brew and that was that was always part of it from the start like we wanted to keep learning and keep figuring things out we didn't want we didn't want the job to become like stagnant I mean I think we're creative people and it's important to keep learning and the beers will keep changing as you learn and as you grow and uh, it's made it uh, it's made it fun even after uh, doing this now almost 10 years like we're still we're still excited about what we brew and um, we brew what we what we like to
0: drink. And, um, it seems like each beer is its own little adventure, you know, from that kind of concepting phase to the gathering of the ingredients and then even through the, the very laborious brewing process that you all have set up for it. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, And I definitely want to talk about how you will use and utilize, evaluate, and then, uh, you know, have found using some of these ingredients. Before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there's a better way. The Kraft Concentrate Blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard Concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins of crushed low-fills or undercarbonated cans every canning day? It's time to fill like a pro. Profill can fillers from ProBrew use rotary true counter gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with minimal DO pickup. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contact at ProBrew.com today. So let's talk about how you use ingredients. I think, you know, the individual ingredients were going to vary depending on wherever anyone is and what they have access to. But in a broader conceptual way, um, talk to me about how you approach figuring out how to use the natural ingredients that are around you. There's an infinite number of ways, hot side additions, um, steeping teas, cold side additions, you know, using flowers, using leaf, using bark, stem, twigs, you know, uh, know, time of, uh, you know, varying uh, extraction methods, uh, building tinctures. I mean, an infinite array of different ways to try to pull flavors out of these ingredients. But from a, broader kind of conceptual standpoint what does that process look like when you're evaluating new ingredients
1: well yeah that was something that we were doing a lot towards the beginning um trying to understand how to use ingredients that we'd never tried before in a beer um and um yeah how to add them in all of the many many ways that you just enumerated um One thing that we found really early on that I think kind of changed our perspective about how one could use the ingredients um, was by by putting a bunch of them in at the beginning of the boil, because I think intuitively we thought maybe like hops, they were something that might lose uh, flavor and aroma if you boiled them for a long time, and maybe you would only pick up aroma towards the end of the boil, or if you put it in cold side or um, after primary fermentation or something. And what we found, um, surprisingly, was that all these other flavors came out, and it didn't seem to be like hops at all. Um, These are mostly like garden type of herbs um, with this particular beer. Um, But it showed us that we couldn't treat these um, plants or really any plant other than hops like hops. Hops are their own unique Hmm. flavoring and and bittering ingredient. Um, And that really opened up um, the possibilities. And actually, I feel like we probably do a lot of our additions counterintuitively in that sense, because people probably are mostly used to adding hops, uh, as a flavoring ingredient, or maybe they're, you know, also, um, used to adding fruit or something post primary. Um, but we actually add a lot of our ingredients to the boil. And I would almost say 95% of our ingredients go into the boil at some point, uh, whether it's the beginning or the end or in the middle, kind of just depending on what we've learned over the years. Um, so, for, for new ingredients, um, we might take a plant and say, well, we've used a, a sister plant in, this, in the same family um, in a particular way, so let's try it this way, um, and it's been successful. Um, or if it's something really very, very new, what, you know, a new plant that maybe Aaron just came across in the woods when he was <laughs> wandering around <laughs> looking for ginseng, Um he usually brings it back and we'll make a, a tea with it. Um, and that at least gives us a good kind of baseline of what happens when you put this in hot water. Mm-hmm. How much bitterness is extracted? Um, what is the aroma like? Um, yeah, sometimes we find, oh my God, this is way too bitter for beer. Um, or, you know, we thought this was going to be bitter because it's like another plant, but it's not at all. Um, and then... And then also kind of understanding how much might need be need to be added to the beer to really get the aroma or flavor to come across too. So very often it starts with just a, a tea. And then we, uh, I don't think people think of us as cautious or conservative, but we do tend to be that way in some Mm. regards. And one of them is adding new ingredients to beer. We certainly don't want to dump any beer. So if we are using something new, we might actually put it in in a sort of a slightly smaller quantity until we know what it's going to do um, after a batch or two. And as Aaron says, I mean, we part of the fun of this and why it is fun to brew beer every day or every week um, is that we always feel like we're learning and experimenting. Um, and you know, even if we know that adding ginger, let's say at 30, um, minutes towards before the end of the boil is a good way to extract the ginger for us. Um, there might be something about ginger that we just never realized and putting it in on accident at a different time might yield different results or something like that. Um, so it's always, it, it, for us, it always feels like a process of learning. Um, it never feels like things are, are written in stone.
2: I would just like to say too, on the, uh, when we use new plants, they're not totally new to us. The first step obviously is IDing the plant and making sure it's safe. Right. We're not going to add anything to a beer that is unsafe. So that's, that's kind of the first step. And then as Marcus said, we'll Uh, We'll make a tea of it and uh, just see how every possible way that you could get any kind of different aromatics into the thing. So maybe we boil some, maybe we hot steep some, maybe we cold steep some, but every way you could visualize putting it into the beer. uh, We just do little examples of that Um, because maybe one time we want the bitterness out of that plant and we don't want very much flavor or aroma from it. Or we want the aroma without bitterness. So figuring out the right combinations of that has largely been... It's largely occurred batch by batch over time. And after, you know, eight years of being open and brewing all of these beers on a small system, so we got a ton of practice brewing with these things. Um, at this point, we have a pretty good idea when we can add certain things to uh, get the flavors we want.
1: Yeah, and then there's there's another angle to it too. Um I was just thinking about our single tree hickory beer and um learning to brew with barks. You know, we I think Ryan was the one who had come across a hickory bark syrup a long time ago and um f- you know, followed the um I think it was a recipe that he had read to toast the hickory bark and then boil it and then um Add sugar to that boiled hickory bark sort of tea um, to make the syrup. And so we thought, okay, well, so you boil the bark uh, for the syrup. Why don't we just boil the bark in the beer and see what that does? Sure. So, by complete, you know, just experimentation, just tried it and it turned out really good. But we learned a lot about brewing um, well, with all kinds of barks. But really, we did, we continued to learn more about. About hickory bark over the years too, so you know we found after success, you know, um, that brewing it again in some batches we didn't have so much success, and we tried to understand why, like why does this batch taste more green, you know, why does this why does this batch not quite get the smokiness across or something. Um, you know, and found that, you know, some barks, if they have more moss on them, <laughs> <laughs> they do convey a little bit more of a green sort of mossy flavor yeah. or, you know, may, so maybe that bark isn't the best to harvest. Um, and then making sure that it's like starting to almost smoke in the oven before we pull it out to put it into the boil is another important way of... Um, treating the bark. So over, over the years and over batch after batch, you know, even if you have a success the first time, you're still understanding the plant because it's just the beginning of your, of your journey with it, your, your knowledge of it. In fact, I'm going to crack that beer open right now.
2: (laughs) Sounds great. I guess we got, we got started brewing with trees largely because the brewery's in the forest and we're located near the national forest here. So if you look out into the landscape, um, all the ingredients we used are very well represented really close to us. Um I think we've probably brewed with over ten or fifteen, maybe twenty trees. If you I mean if you start counting fruit as being part of trees, then then you could go yeah, right. pretty high. But um yeah. The reason we've chosen to use hickory bark so much other than the really nice aroma too, is it can be harvested in such a way that's like it doesn't hurt the tree at all. Mm. That the species of hickory we use is it's called a shag bark hickory and the bark just kind of flakes off when the tree uh, achieves like a certain age and you can just peel the bark off and, um, it doesn't hurt the tree. It's just the outer, the outer layer that's already, uh, it's already dead, but yeah, oak bark, hickory bark, maple bark, sycamore, the leaves off of all those trees, the, um, Dead leaves, like a mix of all those leaves in the mm-hmm. fall is really nice. If you think about uh, all of those barks and most plants, hops included, add tannin to beer, which is, it's, a, it's an important thing and it's very important in wine as well. And um, all of those leaves and all of those plants have different levels of that. So you can add dead leaves to mimic... Uh, tannins you might get in a, in an oak barrel or uh different bark or acorns can add uh, tannins to there's so many different ingredients that can serve the same purpose as the ones already out there so why not use the ones that are readily available and free for us just to to gather nearby so
0: it's a funny one because you know as we think about some of the kind of current trendy beers that are out there in the world of beer, like a pastry stout that, you know, a, a beer that's made to taste like a breakfast cereal. It's pulling on, you know, nostalgic registers in the brains of the, of those that are drinking it. Like those things that click, I remember this from my childhood and I feels comforting and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and that's why I find this experience interesting. What's, well, clever and fascinating is that in some ways you're using a similar mechanism and using but doing it with a different set of of those triggers you know whether that's the nostalgic you know hickory in a you know your grandfather's fire or no, that's yeah that's really interesting to think about i hadn't
2: thought about that uh that comparison before but yeah the pastry stouts and stuff are brewed for nostalgic reasons too so there's there's not much difference and some of the reasoning well, behind I, brewing those. I mean, you could say that they in work, a way, they work I mean, in a
0: similar fashion in terms of the yeah, way that people tied to memory and find things, a connection yeah. to them. But, um, you know, at the same time, there's something interesting about doing it here with these things for people that have grown up in this area who are also familiar with the same sights and smells, um, you know, aromas and the same trees and and it might have a connection, you know, that that's different with those kinds of of things, those experiences that they've had walking through the same forests that, you know, they can can recapture this and and working in a different kind of memory mode there. Um, There's something that's really fascinating and fun about that.
1: Yeah, a lot of people ask us what um, locals who come in who maybe normally just drink bush light or something think about this brewery when they come in here because it's so outside the box and actually honestly they're the ones that get it the most because they know the flavors that are in these beers and once they understand what we're doing you know that we're trying to capture those flavors and express them they they get it and they love it yeah So it's actually not outside the box for them once they kind of understand what we're doing.
0: I I can absolutely see that. Let's talk a little bit about brewing with bark in particular, because that's just a, I mean, it's an ingredient that I have never talked in 200, and this is episode 208. In the past 207 episodes of the podcast, I've never spoken to anyone about brewing with bark. Um, You know, so talk to me about you know, you mentioned boiling, um, you know, is there a time when you tend to harvest is, you know, how, as you are looking at this and, and, and working with it, um, you know, what have you found as some of the best ways to kind of capture an expression of bark? Um, I guess,
2: generally speaking in the, in the summer and spring and fall, we have fresh ingredients, leafy. Ingredients from plants and fruit and things we grow in the garden, and then in the winter time we'll typically go out and use these other things that are easier to procure during that time. So probably most of the tree bark stuff gets made during the winter. The winter time, uh, and we'll use like. Uh, different dried things that we have around but yeah the bark
0: usually i should mention that you all have written a book the brewer's almanac uh, which very much follows that kind of seasonal approach to brewing finding ingredients that you should and and can use at any given time of the year if anyone listening is interested in following this approach you should go buy the book because uh, it's a fantastic resource for for anyone you know uh, following that but it is uh Yeah, a nice thought to be able to, you know, go out in the wintertime and and find that as an ingredient.
2: Yeah. I think that's a common question that comes up. People ask, well, how can you forage in the winter? Well, yeah, we use things that are, are available in the winter, different types of wood to age beer on and things like that. And things that we've grown over the year or found and by the different Plants, You can see their stems sticking up, so we can dig those up and use the roots in the winter. Um, there's a bunch of things that can be gathered in the winter. And there's always a readily supply of wood here. Like uh, if we have a storm and a big branch breaks off a tree, we can use that in the beer. That may be that may dictate what beer we brew the following <laughs> week, whatever yeah. we have, and what's the easiest for us to procure on that day.
1: Yeah, there's some barks, too, that if you were to overharvest harvest from a tree um could could harm the tree. So um it it is often the case that a tree comes down for one reason or another. Um, you know, maybe in a storm and um cherry cherry is a a good example um because, you know, that requires basically skinning all the bark off the tree. Mm. Um so if Aaron comes across but wild cherry bark is one of our absolute favorite additions to beer. So if Aaron ever comes across a tree that's down, we know we're brewing next week.
2: <laughs> well and we have uh, we have a really good friend and he works out here occasionally and he uh, he has a tree trimming business as well. So I'll ask him periodically, Hey, do you have any uh, are you taking down any wild cherry trees? Or are you taking down do you have any oak trees in your in your wood pile over there? And um Usually he's always got those woods on hand, so we can we can procure all of those and get all of those uh, pretty easily. But yeah, the cherry bark, um, um, you definitely do have to strip it off the tree, and there's mm-hmm. really no way to do that without. So we we wouldn't do it to like a, a living right. tree unless right. it already had to come down.
1: Yeah, and then um, you know because that could really happen any time of year. You know maybe a tree comes down in the summer. Um, And then we kind of look at as far as what beer we're going to brew with it. Um, We might not be able to brew, say, our wild cherry beer to guard, which is a beer that we love, but we can't brew in the summer because we cool with groundwater um, and we can't quite get our fermentation temperature to the proper, you know, lager type of temperature to make the beer that we like um, for that style. So um, instead, we'd probably brew, say, our we make a a dark, sour, wild cherry um, beer, uh, which we ferment with our sourdough culture, uh, which is like our wild house culture. And that's that's our kind of our summer, spring, summer, fall culture, um, because the temperatures are just right for that in our brew house. Um, So the seasons also kind of dictate what beer might be brewed based on what our fermentation temperatures are like. Um, and even sometimes the grains that we have available, if, if we're maybe running low on ordering (laughs) something in particular, uh, we might, but you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of the fun about the way Aaron and I both are kind of like this, that we, it's easy for us to improvise. We enjoy improvising. Um, you know, we, neither one of us has a problem with changing the beer halfway through the boil if something isn't going right during a brew day. Yeah. Um, we're also not locked into trying to have to brew a particular beer to particular specs. And that's the fun of it, the joy of it, what we're doing here.
0: Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about how you brew from a technical perspective because, uh, you know, that it is a very different approach from a lot of well, – I mean – it's it's still brewing, you're still mashing and you're still boiling you're still fermenting um, but the way that you all have chosen to do that uh, is definitely the hard way uh, before so let's talk about that but before we do, working on a new sour beer fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation is now offering an expanded range of dry bacteria for the production of sour beers to learn more about how fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation. And for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food-grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to ClarionLubricants.com to learn more. So explain to everybody listening your process of brewing. Your mashing strategy is unusual, to say the least. Um, open top wood uh, punch and fermenter or for mash tons um, dual that you mash in. And then uh, your boiling process using a wood fired kettle uh, is certainly not the Typical method for making beer. Um, talk to me a little bit about the decisions that went into to making beer that way. Why you chose to do it that way, and uh, you know some of the nuances of working with a very, 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 very manual system.
1: <laughs> um, some of it is definitely a commitment to a certain flavor profile that we like. Some of it is purely out of necessity. Um, so we, we started uh, on a shoestring budget in a, on a little barrel and a half system in a tiny little kitchen brew house um, and slowly have scaled up to about a seven or eight barrel uh, wood fired system um, and have just grown our, our business has grown naturally. Um, we've just you know not gone out on a limb on very many loans here so we've just kind of accumulated cash and put it back into the business and slowly built out a a bigger brew house than what we started with but not a giant one by any
0: means you've slowly been building everything here right new buildings you know larger spaces for people to come out here and drink beer in Aaron has got a cabin that's uh, you know caddy corner from us now that you've moved uh, onto the the property here uh 1890s cabin that you're rehabbing and turning it into another another facility here for for beer service and enjoyment like, you know, everything is a constant work in progress of some sort here
1: indeed and also a little bit um, shoestringed and a little bit also just you know people often just give us stuff and we're like all right well what can we make with this whether it's an ingredient for a beer or um, you know a church pew that becomes a you know the back of a bunch of tables um, but so when we were starting to scale up we didn't have the money to put into a you know fancy brand new mash tons, so we uh, converted these two punch into mash tons, and for all of about $800, we had um eight barrels worth of, of mash tun, put um, some valves on them and a couple false bottoms, and there you have it, they actually work amazingly well.
0: Um, oh, so you, it, I mean, controlling temperature has to. Yeah, its own interesting challenge We've, there
1: we figured out how to dial in the temperature during the seasons um and uh we just do a single infusion mash There's not we can't do too much more fancy with it um we have other ways of doing step mashes on our old system if we want to but yeah. um, it's it's a pretty simple mash and then we just sparge from a uh, an on-demand hot water heater um and then run that the wort directly out to the kettle. And we have outside of our... Um,
0: You're not doing the overnight mash uh, a la Ale Apothecary?
1: <laughs> not, not at the moment. Okay. Not at the moment. Um, and yeah, we, we send the beer into a big copper kettle that, um, that Aaron could talk about in a second. He worked closely with the person who built it. Um, to design a wood-fired system and this is where we kind of have a a stronger commitment to like what comes out of the beer at this stage. Um, Our very first beer that we brewed here actually was in a copper kettle before we had our propane hooked up for our quote-unquote real system that we were brewing on for a while Um, and we just we wanted to get some beer made and a friend who's an auctioneer had an old apple butter kettle that he let us borrow that fit maybe 30 gallons, 30 gallons or so in it. And I think we had like a 15-hour brew day out here to produce <laughs> about 45 gallons of beer on this copper kettle. And we made a beer de garde, just a straightforward beer de garde to style. and we were all amazed by the extra little bit of kettle caramelization that came out of that wood-fired process as we boiled the wort in that kettle. And we just kind of knew from literally day one, from that first brew day, that that was a special way of making beer that we wanted to keep doing. So a little while later we found somebody who made apple butter kettles and We had him make us um, the biggest size that he could, which was about 100 gallons, Um, ship that out here. And we brewed on that for several years and kind of just understood about, like, stoking the fire and and doing that on a regular basis and, you know, continued to really like the results. Um, And then we scaled up again to a slightly bigger kettle.
2: Yeah, we um, also figuring... Well, in our copper kettle, one of the things that's been so much fun with that and then in designing it was figuring out a way to make it to where it was efficient. So all the um, using as little amount of wood as possible to boil as much beer as possible and still get the the boil off rate that we want because we actually look for quite a bit of boil off to add that caramelization and complexity to the beer. So. In your head, when you think of a wood fired system, you would you would think of this massive cauldron surrounded by all of these bricks. This like big walled in brick structure that has so much mass. Well, the problem is with that is when you throw your wood in there, you're heating up that mass, and that mass has to get hot before it boils the beer. So you're gonna use a lot more wood. So so for ours, we just have an insulated shield around this uh, this kettle. And then also we have a lot of surface area on the kettle. So the kettle is not totally cylindrical in ours. It looks like, um, yeah, just like a big cauldron. And those slanted sides on there add surface area to the whole thing. It's more area that's in contact with the fire. Every BTU. spreads a little bit of
0: heat rather than focusing it just on the bottom of the yeah,
2: kettle. Yeah, that's that's boiling almost like a, a steam jacket, if you will. It's boiling on all sides of the vessel and not just in, in one spot. Mm-hmm. And copper is such a great uh conductor that uh the efficiency of the boil on that uh wood kettle is really really nice and
0: yeah. How do you, I mean, I, I'm sure brewers listening are thinking about scorching because that's uh, you know, a concern with every direct fire brew house.
2: I think with the copper, it, it's such a good conductor that it can move heat around. So the kettle temperature is even out really quickly. So it'll send excess heat to other areas of the kettle that maybe aren't so hot. But we've never really had a problem with scorching on the copper kettle at all. And that even goes for, say, boiling a full kettle, which is around 10 barrels to start, and cooking that all the way down to three barrels left, doing like a 15, 16-hour boil. Um, even at that consistency, we've had no scorching. Another thing about, I was just thinking about this on the wooden mash tins and temperature control, is wood is such a great insulator that once you hit the temperature you're looking for, in that wood, it's not going to lose and transmit as much heat as a metal vessel, an uninsulated metal vessel, I'll say. So the wood holds its temperature really well. And for that reason, it's been it's been really nice because we can, uh, even in the wintertime, you know, we can kind of preheat those mash tunes a little bit by putting hot water in there covering them over. And we cover the top with insulate, or like a, uh, it's like a hard, uh mm-hmm. insulation board kind of thing. Right. That also holds in the temperature. So even 2 hours after you mash in the temperature hasn't dropped but maybe 1 degree. It's mm. it's uh Yeah. It's fun thinking of practical solutions for a problem. The problem solving is really fun. Yeah. And they don't have to be super complicated solutions to the sure. the problem.
0: When you're using this wood-fired kettle, it's generally a two person operation. One person is, uh, operating the fire. The other person is washing the brew.
2: Yeah. So generally, uh, uh, Marika will be mashing and transferring and I will be, uh, I'll have the fun job, I guess, of stoking the, the fire a lot of times, Yeah, but the fun job also comes with cleaning the kettle and all of that. So it, it all equals out, I think, but, uh, it's fun because knowing when to throw what wood in the fire, how big of a stack to throw in, do you do you spread those uh, branches out? Do you uh, do you keep them in a pile so they burn slower? So I guess I could start at the beginning of how the fire goes sure. through the whole process, but.
0: I love that there's a science to how you're building the fire itself, <laughs> you know, even down to the moisture content of the wood and what that means in terms of the temperature that it burns. You can, because You you're...
2: can tell really quickly uh, if the wood is burning as hot as it has previously or before. So just being aware as you're doing it, we've noticed quite a few things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to interrupt and say, this is why I just like doing the water, like, I just like to watch this barge.
2: <laughs> so we'll transfer. Yeah, we'll start transferring out of the, the from the mash tun to the boil kettle. Um, once it gets a few inches deep in there, uh, we will start firing it pretty intensely with small wood just to get it as hot as we can as fast as we can.
0: What kind of wood do you typically burn in there?
2: Uh, we get a bunch of wood that's left over from a a guy who makes pallets. Mm. So they're little thin strips kind of, and, uh, various woods, but, uh, we start adding those and fire it pretty heavily until about maybe five or 10 minutes from when we get our total volume. And then you kind of back it off. So then you slow it down because if you keep firing, it seems like there's about a 10 minute lull between where your temperature is going to be. So you can get a boil over if you keep firing right up until mm-hmm. the last second. So you back off a little bit and then once you hit a boil, then you can ramp the fire up again. But, um, but it's very easy to have a boil over. I could have designed our kettle a little bigger actually. Cause we were a few inches from the top when we're, <laughs> when we're going. So yeah. we made it yeah. hard on ourselves.
0: Do you, how do you measure that temperature? And how do you know, or is this just something by feel where you, uh, you sense mean, that boil? It's just practice coming? and yeah.
2: seeing it. But when you are getting close to a boil, there's a certain sound that the kettle will have. There's like a kind of a clicking sound and there there's a certain sound that you can recognize when you're getting close. And yeah. also the the consistency of the foam on top of the beer is a pretty good indicator when you're getting really close to a boil.
0: And, and then as you hit a boil... You know, how do you maintain your fire through that?
2: So after you hit the boil, you're going to be adding bigger boards that are thicker that will burn slower and release maybe a little less heat because we already have the water at the temperature we need or the wort at the temperature we need. So then it's just maintenance, maintaining it. Yeah. So maybe every, every 15 minutes we probably throw wood in.
0: How long is a typical boil? I mean, I imagine it's going to differ beer to beer, but...
1: Um we I mean Pilsner malt is the base of almost all of our beers, mm. so we boil for at least ninety minutes and sometimes just two hours,
0: yeah and since it's a giant open top uh, uh you know kettle that uh, there's no concern about uh d m s you mm-hmm. know production plenty of plenty of ways for it all to blow off right yeah, right exactly yeah.
1: yeah
0: um you know are there any other and of course you add a lot of hot side ingredients then mm-hmm. as you're you're boiling. Through that, are those those typically going at the front end of the boil? Then, or uh... that's
1: where it sort of gets scattered about, depending yeah. on on the beer. But a lot of them do. We have giant; they call them cool shit bags. It's just just giant nylon bags that mm-hmm. we fill with um, plant material, and
0: so you put them bagged into the boil. We then. do, yeah. Okay.
1: Otherwise, uh, could definitely risk getting clogged on the way to the sure. fermenter. Yeah, sometimes we have two or three giant bags full of plants in there. Sometimes. You know, one bag goes in at 60, one bag might go in at 30, one might go in at flame-out.
0: You just prep your ingredient bags before you start brewing so that you know this goes in at this point and this is how much. Um, You know, I imagine you're pre you know, to, to step back a little bit, your pre-process on all of those ingredients, you've determined the kind of what you think the right intensity is going to be for these things as they go in and kind of, you know, it's not like other more measured uh, ingredients that you might order from a supply house where right. they're going to be consistent and they're going to, you know, like a lot of these ingredients have variants. Yeah, there's, you know, um especially as you start going from making a tea with a you know piece of uh, of something and then trying to scale that up into you know eight barrels and mm-hmm. you know 240 gallons i mean it's quite a bit different than your cup of tea, um, you know, figuring out how that intensity also scales, um, you know, has to pose its own challenge.
1: Yeah. And I think fortunately we were able to do a lot of that on our smaller scale equipment when we were first getting Mm -hmm. up and, and running. So when we were really heavily experimenting with a lot of different plants, um, you know, scaling up to just say 45, 50 gallons was simpler than trying to understand how it would work in, 240 gallons right. um and so now i'd say there's fewer things that we're just sort of blindly putting into that scale not that it's even a lot of beer but it's still quite a bit of beer and right. work that you don't want to have to dump later so once yeah. you've
0: brewed eight barrels of beer the hard way that you brew them i can see not ever wanting to dump that you like do yeah, yeah yeah there's an investment in every every batch that right way. yeah right Um, But versus something like a cold side, you know, addition process where you can add taste, add taste, add taste, and dial it in, Um, you know, that hot side addition process in the boil. If you don't add it then, then it's not in the beer. Right. And
1: and I don't know, maybe it's just the ingredients that, that we tend to use here, but I often find that when we add stuff cold side, there's a smaller margin for error. Really? Yeah. Like... Lavender is a great example. We put lavender in the boil and, and that's one that we found early on worked really well in the boil. Um, you put it in at 60 minutes and instead of getting soapy floral qualities, you get more cinnamon baking spice kind of
0: qualities. Um, and I have a glass of the lavender stout right here and it's exactly that. Like, a little bit floral mm-hmm. on the nose. You
1: can recognize that it's lavender. Right.
0: Right. I can recognize it because it's. if I've been told that it's lavender. <laughs> and so it's the language of the that beer has set an expectation for me, which I can find in the nose. And then you're right. As I take a sip, it really tastes a little bit more like cinnamon or mole kind of spice than right. it does like lavender. Mm-hmm. And that's because of a hot side addition? Because of the
1: hot side addition and the boiling. And we found that that 60 Minutes was a good... Um, boil time. Um, to put it in to to capture that those notes, putting it in the fermenter, all of a sudden, um, and even not not even putting in the flowers, but but putting in the which w- what we normally do is put in the um, the branches and the stems. Um, even that in the fermenter is a completely different experience, and all of a sudden, mm. you know, overnight, the beer could become over lavendered. And to the point where it's suddenly soapy, it was never soapy before, you know, maybe we put in a certain amount into the boil, it didn't quite get where we wanted to, we just wanted to add a touch more, and then suddenly overnight, there's too much. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and we found that to be the case with, with a number of ingredients that yeah. the hickory bark is another good example that putting it in the fermenter is not ideal. It's more ideal to put it into the boil. And that suddenly different kinds of extraction happen in the fermenter, um, you know, whether it maybe it's just slight, slight bit of alcohol that's extracting something right. or just the cold side of it. Um, but with the ingredients we tend to use, I feel like it's sometimes harder
0: to hmm. do the cold side. Yeah. Let's talk about some other favorite ingredients that you have. You know, now eight years in, you all have done a lot of experimenting And you've also found some things that you keep going back to because they deliver that kind of flavor and experience and um, build a a blend between some of these things um, that you just continue to find compelling. Talk to me about some of those uh, kind of common ingredients or common combinations of ingredients that that you you keep going back to.
2: I think uh, for me, one of my favorite ingredients is uh, chanterelle mushrooms. We Mm. use that almost every year now. Uh, whenever we, we can gather them. And um, uh, when you
0: say gather, you mean from the property right behind the boon yeah, house all here? Yeah, from right around here. Yeah.
2: We're, we're lucky to have a uh, forest nearby where they... The forest is lousy with them. They're yeah. everywhere. Yeah. They're everywhere.
0: Oh, there's so many chefs um, out
2: there that are so jealous right now. <laughs> but it's so tied to rain. And this right. summer was a really dry year for us here. All the weather went north or south. This year we gathered 40 pounds where normally we might gather uh, 120 pounds. But um, the flavor that that mushroom has, beer showcases it perfectly. The, the beer comes out tasting exactly like that basket of mushrooms smells like.
0: What is your process for brewing with mushrooms?
2: Uh, they, uh, they go into various stages of the boil every 15 minutes or so do you chop them through up through throw there. them in
0: whole freeze them to break down cell walls what, so what does was that processing uh, look like
2: typically as marica mentioned earlier in the in the summer since we do chill with groundwater we brew a lot more saisons and uh, but in the winter we are afforded the luxury of being able to chill the beer to <laughs> a lower temperature So we can brew more non-estuary beers and ferment at cooler temperatures. So we gather the chanterelles, we pack them into bags, we freeze them, and then based on how many we have going into fall will dictate how much of that beer we brew.
0: So you, you wait then in the fall because you want to brew a less estuary beer with those chanterelles to help that character come out without that farmhouse right. saison ester approach
1: right we did we did a saison style beer with the chanterelles like maybe our first beer that we tried with it and the esters were too um forward in the beer and they kind of blocked some of the bouquet of chanterelle that aaron was talking about you know that's apricotty you know earthy kind of aromas that are so distinctive of chanterelle mushrooms um, so the next year we brewed with it cause we had to wait till we collected mushrooms next, sure. the following year, we decided to do something more like a hybrid style beer de garde with it. Um, and we saved all the mushrooms we harvested and brewed that beer in the winter time. And we liked that style a lot better because it, it, all the esters were, had mostly died back. You still get a little bit in like a, a French style, um, f- a farmhouse beer, um, but it really allowed the chanterelle mushroom to shine and, you know, for us to express what the woods are like that time of year when you're out collecting mushrooms and come back with a big bucket or basket full of them. Um, and over the years, we've gone for for cooler fermenting yeasts um, to just bring it out more, to to give the beer a bit more clarity even of what that mushroom is like. So we've just... That's the style that we've liked the most that we think is most expressive. And it's the bottle that I I often hand to people um, who haven't had our beer before. I say this to me, this is scratch. This is one of the most emblematic beers uh, that we make that tastes like our woods.
0: What uh, what is that range of fermentation? I love the idea that fermentation is also dr- driven by the real world concerns of using groundwater for cooling and what temperature you can get. Thing It's just very pragmatic. And yeah. wintertime, you can use lager yeast, In summertime you're going to use farmhouse culture. Um, you know that a lot of breweries that tread on that idea of terroir are capturing native cultures and and building these kind you know, these cultures and using that. Um, You know, to build this kind of connection. Since yours is very ingredient focused, uh, it's interesting that you'd use fermentation as a in a little more flexible way around that in order to um, complement those ingredients in the best way possible given given those seasons. But what um you know what is that? What do those differing fermentation approaches look like for you? What uh, cold yeasts do you tend towards? And then uh, in terms of summertime culture for more farmhouse or Saison style beers, you know, how, how is that culture developed?
1: So we use our, our sourdough culture for, we've used it. um, It's been our only culture we've been using for the last maybe five or so months. Um, It really struggles in the winter um, to keep temperature in our fermenters. We kind of have like a, almost a hybrid of an ambient, and a glycol system back there, so our our glycol jacketed fermenters um, only cool our tanks, but don't heat them up. Hmm. So in the winter, um, the room that our our tanks are in is often fifty degrees or below. Um, so our our cult our sourdough culture, so sort of like our our wild house culture, we call. Um, it just struggles against those temperatures. So rather than try to force. So
0: you also bake here using the same culture to ferment your, some of these beers as you are in in making, baking your bread. It's
1: literally the same exact culture. It lives in our fridge. Hmm. It's made out of flour and water and we build it up the exact same way for beer as we do for bread. Um, Yeah. So we've we've kind of just, you know, found over the years that that rather than struggle um, with our sourdough fermentations in the winter, uh, we would just do cooler fermenting yeasts. And so, you know, kind of the dead of winter, we're pretty much just use at this point this last year, we just did lager yeast. We often do a hybrid like all yeast and use that for Mm -hmm. some hybrid fermentations. But this last year, we just did different varying kinds of lagers and and then sometimes on on the edge seasons like spring and fall, um, you know, before we get into like full out sourdough fermentations, um, we'll often use just sapphire yeast, USO5 or SO4. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's one less decision you have to make, really, if when we when we brew in the winter, we know we don't have to choose from a lot of different uh yeast, so our yeast is already defined, and our water temperature and ambient temperature of the room is is clear, so it makes it easier just to work with that and we um and also, I mean, we don't use near the energy we would use if we heated that right. part of the brewery um from a an environmental standpoint. it's also a way to conserve energy. It's nice, I think it it also lends itself to us being able to brew maybe a beer once a year instead of having to brew it once a month or once every two months. So when it comes back around time to brew that beer again, we're we're excited about it and uh we're looking forward to see how it tastes that year. It never it doesn't seem to become a real chore just having to do it once a year too. Right.
0: Now there's upsides and downsides to that because you're also not brewing it as frequently and dialing in and dialing in. Like, you know, if you want to make changes then those changes are a little slower to come if you're if you're brewing that beer one time a year, um, but I guess at this point, eight years in, you've <laughs> been able to uh, you know apply that kind of learning. How do you how do you uh, keep track of that? Well, it's
2: nice too. Uh, I'm sure over the course of the year we forget certain things about the beer, but what you remember is the most important part. I think so. It also. Uh, it's not making it so structured that it can't change a little bit. Like it can, it can adapt with our taste. Obviously we control all the temperature variables that we need to, to brew good beer and brewing a, a great beer is first and foremost in that. And then after you control those variables, you can kind of let certain things happen in flavor and it can be slightly different because after a year, all of our brains maybe are a little cloudy on what it exactly
0: tasted like but sure there's a you know the the philosophical challenge in making especially like wild and sour beer which you, you all do make some yeah you know, becomes that that fundamental question between do you release the beer that your conditions make or do you work the beer to become that thing that is some combination of what the culture and ingredients provide matched with um you know a a palate and approach and a taste that is also going to become favorable you know and um connect with your consumers and there are brewers that make the beer and the beer is what the beer is going to be because that's what the conditions that they've set up create and then there are others who are massaging that as i taste that single uh tree hickory beer you know there's a kind of a Brett fruitiness to the overall fermentation it's a dry beer but there's still this kind of fruity idea that underpins the the entire hickory piece what do you how do you all manage through that uh, you know the kind of difficult question of steering you know these uh, mixed culture beers to become those things that also reflect the idea that you have for them that are also going to just you know be attractive to people that want to drink them and not just austere difficult experiences
1: yeah drinkability is has always been on the forefront of our minds um from the very beginning um we wanted to make we we make pretty low low gravity beers in the grand scheme of things um I always joke that um, if I don't know what the ABV is on one of our beers, it's probably about five point two percent because that's about <laughs> somewhere of, yeah. on the average. And so, yeah, it's always been um, we we have never wanted people to struggle with our beer. We've we've wanted them to to understand the flavors um, coming through, and and also not not to necessarily hit people over the head with them either. Um. You know, I think we're both in, inspired by a, a Belgian kind of um, beer or process that um, melds flavors together um, in a way that's pleasant, and sometimes you can't pick out what those things are, and that's what you like about it is is the whole that you're drinking together. Um, you know, for us, we have learned a lot about plants and and how to use them sparingly or thoughtfully. But also, um, since our sourdough culture is kind of our, you know, the, our, our primary fermenter um, of, I don't know, maybe like 60 to 75% of our beer, um, you know, we've spent a long time working with this very familiar, you know, culture. I mean, it lives with us in our kitchen. It's, it feels (laughs) like a part of the Scratch family in a lot of ways. Um, It was born in our kitchen and it's like eight, nine years old now. Um, We spent an entire year only using that culture for everything. We fermented it at lager temperatures. We, I think we learned everything we almost possibly could with the culture at that time and um, learned a lot about how to, how it expresses itself in different ways and how we can use those flavors to meld with um, the plants that we work with with a single tree hickory what's interesting about when we use the sourdough culture for sour beers is that um, it actually leaves behind a fair bit of residual sugar mm. so it does create a, some est- an ester profile that you pick up that fruitiness um, but it also but it also leaves behind, um, you know, that beer probably started around like 1056 ish mm-hmm. uh, starting gravity, and it ends at like 1014 or 16. Oh, really? So it tastes drier than it actually is, but it leaves behind some balancing residual sugar that also enhances a little bit of the fruitiness. Um, sure this beer started as a little bit of an accident that um, we didn't want to go sour. It did. (laughs) We liked it. Now we control it to go sour um, in this particular way um, with our sourdough culture. And it, it, it's a very unusual beer because the, the toasted marshmallow flavor that you get from the hickory bark is a strange thing to get with sour. But I think with the residual sugar that's left in there with this odd sourdough souring process, um, makes for just an interesting and unique beer overall that, that kind of expresses the hickory.
0: Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, mushrooms, are there other ingredients that, uh, you get very excited to brew with when they're in season? And we should say, in addition to foraged ingredients, you have a small farm here. You've got some goats. You have a greenhouse. You are growing apples. You've got um, passion fruit uh, vines growing on the pat. You know, you, you are you have a lot of living things here to you know to you know more palette uh, paints for your uh, palette.
2: There's a bunch of wild fruit. I can think of four or five that grow in the woods. Uh, yeah, the passion fruit. Uh, which is a native to here. It's like a, I think it's called Maypop as well, but it's a type of passion fruit. And that one's been really neat. That uh, pawpaw, persimmon, and there's maybe one or two more that we haven't gotten to brew with yet just because they're hard to collect enough of to make a, a batch and then have the batch actually taste like that fruit, which it would require a lot. Yeah. Um, But it's really interesting that we live in this Uh, region that one would not describe as tropical, but yet we do have wild native local plants that have all of those tropical flavors. The pawpaw, for example, is just like a mix of mango and papaya, kind of. And the same with, I mean, the passion fruit is really, really tropical. And it's fun to use those, those ingredients, which a lot of people from here even are they ask us, what's that fruit? What's that? And they're just things that usually exist in the woods and go unnoticed, but it's fun to make beers with those things. And people thinking that you're using really exotic ingredients from, I use exotic in the word of like far away, right? but they're ingredients that they've lived by and with their whole life. But they're discovering that at the same time too. So that's really, I think, uh, Maybe an eye opener for people that visit here is that we we do use these wild fruits that taste like they're from another place.
0: It is kind of fascinating that pa- passion fruit, in particular, we associate with tropical, but uh, you know it's available everywhere from you know the upper Mediterranean to here in, in rural Illinois, um, you know, and so yeah, maybe we need to adjust that uh, descriptor and take tropical out, out from in front of passion fruit, uh, you know, as we describe it in the future.
1: And I think, too, the fact that, um, you know, we pretty much only brew each beer, each batch once a year. Um, You know, means that every year, you know, we're looking forward to using the ingredient that we're about to harvest again. Right. We just harvested pawpaws. I was just thinking about sumac. And we have, you know, wild um, edible sumac here. And when you put it in the boil, the way we use it, it tastes a lot like tart cherry pie. It was in the strawberry sumac beer. And it's a great complement to strawberries, which we've frozen and waited until sumac comes right. into the season. But yeah, so I mean, in some ways, you're, you're always looking forward to, oh, it's almost sumac season again, or it's almost that time of year where all the leaves have dropped, and we're back to brewing with bark and cedar branches again, or it's Steinbeer season, you know, which we typically do in, in January and February, um, when it's really cold outside, and we're You know, building these giant bonfires and (laughs) putting the granite rocks in the beer, and that's their you know its own distinctive flavor. And I'm glad we only do that once a year because it is a lot of work too. Right. Um. But yeah, so it kind of makes every ingredient special and fun to work with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's zoom out a little bit now. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Scratch is almost a never ending work in progress, that there's always the next project. And most of these have been built by you. You know, that the pizza oven that you're cooking in is one that you built, Aaron. This this barn is one that you've moved and you're constructing maybe with a little help here and there. You know, the buildings you know you've had a like a real hand in constructing the very things that are here that are the spaces that people enjoy um and that's also not a typical approach for for a lot of rurers. i mean people tend to do you know their own work where they can but i mean putting a 1890s barn up um you know and then building it out and filling it out i mean that there this is a lot of labor of love what is you know what are the next five years 10 years look like for scratch and what do, what you know what do, what do you hope to achieve and, what, and then what's the long-term vision i mean
2: you know it's maybe it's, in the next five years i can finish some of the things that i've started
0: <laughs> i mean it's, it's certainly not a, we're going to get it to this this kind of EBITDA and then flip it out to you know so. the next round of investors i mean you don't put this kind of love into a place thinking that it's it's a, something that you're going to cash out of
2: well, I think uh, it takes time to look at the space and kind of allow it to become different, but not changing the overall feeling and experience. Like, the, I feel like there should be as much care and thought put into our environment where people consume our beer as there is in the beer itself. So I think the environment and the sense of place here only helps to... It's part of the beer, so I love the opportunity for people to come here and try the beer here and see how it compares to maybe their experience buying it somewhere and then and then consuming it. I think it it's all part of the like a cohesive story. No, I really look forward to seeing what we find in the next five or ten years. I'm not a hundred percent sure what I mean, hopefully the feeling of the place will be the same. In five or ten years, like it has been for the previous five or ten years. And hopefully, yeah, I can I can get some things done. I mean, <laughs> Mark and I wear many hats here. Right, it's a right. skeleton crew always, and um, it's hard sometimes to find uh, time for different projects. So sure. it just, it takes a while longer, but we're kind of, I mean, we're in the country and we have space and we can... We can kind of build whatever we want here, so it—that's uh, definitely an advantage to our location. We can—we uh, do have a lot more freedom than maybe a lot of places. Sure. So, and building a building, a building is still making something or crafting something. So, I—I I think that all of that is very related to to making beer. I mean, you're making something that's memorable and unique and. Um, It doesn't exist anywhere else. It's like what you've created. So in that regard, it's just, uh, it's really fun. And
0: yeah, you're creating the beer and you're creating the space for people to enjoy it and connect with it in. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I think you're, you're looking at the next five to 10 years right here. This is, this is really, this is really it. I mean, this is, we'd love to have that seven barrel mash tun, actually. Maybe that (laughs) would probably be the best addition (laughs) if we could get that less than five years. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, But otherwise, like absolutely no plan to change our scale to make anything different from what we're doing right now. Um, The scale, just as Aaron was saying, like it just, it allows us so much freedom to do whatever we want here. We can literally brew whatever we want here right now. And if people like it, that's great. If they don't, we'll just finish the kegs ourselves. and (laughs) We can make a smoky beer and sell it. Yeah. And drink it. You know, I mean, so, I mean, changing much about what we're doing changes, you know, it could change the approach. And it, it could change a lot of things that we don't really have any intention of changing. So this is kind of it. I mean, we've talked about... Some other smaller, you know, additions or, or changes, maybe getting some, um, you know, fresh food angles in here, like perhaps, you know, using this log cabin that Aaron's working on as, um, you know, some way of, of connecting people more with the food side of things and using some of these ingredients and in food, um, which we do in our kitchen here mm-hmm. already, but um, in a more focused way. So there's some, there's definitely some fun possibilities, but but all aligned with what, with what we're doing now in the scale.
0: Well, as I said earlier, it is a beautiful expression of farmhouse brewing in America and maybe one of the most compelling experiences of farmhouse brewing in America that I've come across. It's wonderful to be here. It's been fantastic to talk to both of you about the way that you brew and it's been uh, beautiful just to be here and uh, sit outside and have this conversation. Uh, you know, it, uh, I appreciate you all making time for me. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yeah, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. GND chillers will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. Pathfinder and pure seltzer nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit 1st ProFill can fillers from Pro-Brew use rotary counter-pressure filling to hit speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute. Fermentous dry sour beer uh, bacteria can help you make better sour beer and and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrung.com, click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider the all access pro subscriptions that combine magazines with exclusive online content and more. We would certainly appreciate your support. If you find yourself in Southern Illinois or, say, in St. Louis, which is only about an hour and 45 minutes away, or in Memphis, which is only a little over three hours away, or anywhere... In anywhere of proximity to Scratch Brewing here in Ava, Illinois, on the southeastern tip of Illinois. Um, Make it a point to get here. It's a beautiful, special place with beautiful beers made by some wonderful people. Uh, If people want to learn more about Scratch, Marco, where do they they find you all?
1: Uh, They can find us at scratchbeer.com. And Aaron does the great Instagram photos on our Instagram. Watch out for those. And we're on Facebook.
0: Yeah. Thanks again for hosting me. It's been wonderful to be here and uh, see it and talk to you all. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Brew.